You're now listening to Sanity at the Movies. Movies we don't recommend edition. Garbage movies edition. I don't know if either one of these movies is actually garbage, but neither one of them I don't think we recommend that you. I don't know. I don't know what to talk about. We're going to do two kind of hot takes on two movies currently in theaters. And well, not that hot. Yeah. We're going to do two icy cold takes on movies currently in theaters. Probably still in theaters by the time you listen to this, but we're not going to tell you to see either one, I don't think. So I don't know. Maybe Jake will tell you to see his. I don't know. Mm -hmm. Uh, Yeah. No, no. Okay. So Jake saw, well, I'll let you say it. Uh, Well, first of all, actually, let me let us all say who we are. I'm Nathan. I'm your humble and obedient host with the most. And we've got Ben Solzer there. He's the preacher who's a teacher of cinema. Hello. Lucky that we, we got the preacher who's the teacher of cinema. Of all people we could have on this podcast, sounds like you'd be a perfect fit. You are lucky. And speaking of perfect fits. It's <laughs> Jake's shirt. Yeah. It's a perfect fit on Jake, who's also here. Thanks. He's a pastor. Who's a master of cinema. <laughs> Hi, Jake. Hi. <laughs> I teed it up. You did tee it up. What could I do but I, hit it? I teed, whack it. I teed you up. Well, what's a sports analogy for like you tee someone up to do something that they kind of have to do, but it's it's also lame. Like I'm not teeing you up for like a home for run greatness. or uh, anything. I'm just yeah. I don't know. Uh, I'm teeing you up for a first base For hit. a single? For a single, yeah. I teed you up for a single and uh, you got it. All right. Teeing you up is a golf metaphor. Right. But I gave we, you some... we like to mix metaphors on this show, so I don't <laughs> see do. what the problem is. <laughs> we like mix metaphors like a shark mixing a Cuisinart. <laughs> that wasn't really a, that was just a bad it, metaphor. I can't think of two metaphors. What are two famous metaphors? Uh... We mix metaphors like the early bird gets COVID. No. <laughs> yeah, like the early bird gets COVID. Yeah. There you go. That's good. <laughs> <laughs> All right. There. All right. Ben has declared it good. That yeah, means we can have... we can move on with the show. So Jake saw a movie. I saw a movie. Both of them in theaters. We have cold takes. And Jake, what is your movie? Fantastic Beasts, The Secret Crimes of Grumbledore. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, it's, it's right there, is it? Yeah. No, that's number two is The Secret Crimes of Grumbledore. What is this? This is uh, Fantastic Beasts. Oh, it is The Secrets. Yeah, last time was Crimes of Grindelwald. This time is Secrets of Dumbledore. Secrets of Dumbledore. And I think Grumbledore is the way that we talk about this romantic couple. So, Oh, is that is that their, I wanted to say slave name, not slave name. Is that their celebrity mashup name? If it's not, it should be. The Secrets of Grumbledore. So we have a couple at the center of this movie. Yeah. By, by the way, spoilers for both these movies. Virulent spoilers. Yeah, spoilers from the outset. Yeah, no, the whole heart of this movie is the uh, romance between Albus Dumbledore and Gellert Grindelwald, now played by Mads Mikkelsen, because Johnny Depp got canceled for being a victim of Amber Heard's uh, slander. Yeah, slander, whatever. So... Anyhow, but Mads Mikkelsen is an upgrade on Johnny Depp. Well, if you want but, somebody to play dark homoeroticism, I mean, Mads Mikkelsen made his name in America, at least, with a, a pretty famous scene of that sort of thing with uh, old James Bond and yep. has only gotten more powerful at that sort of thing. He is the guy that you hire if you want to put a nice... And they sheen, hired sheen him. him. They sure hired him to do mm-hmm. that. And then they sure did that. Mm-hmm. This movie is really just Jude Law and Mads Mikkelsen going around and around each other in a really homoerotic way for the entire movie with a whole mess of other plot things that don't quite pull together or make a lot of sense or just feel sort of scattered, like a lot of connective tissue is cut, like the only thing grounding this movie at the center of it is the romance between Dumbledore and Grindelwald. That's really it. That's the whole But does Dolly movie. Parsnips come back from the dark side or she whatever does. her name is? She does, and it ends with a wedding. And Dumbledore sitting wistfully outside. Like he'll never have his wedding. Exactly. So, so just to be clear, are we talking... I, I understand there's not going to be a, a long actual pornographic gay scene because this is a movie for it wasn't it but but we're talking text not subtext right it's it's absolutely text it is like early in the movie we have this sort of like you know how ray and uh kylo ren had their like uh force 
mind meld connection where they could be in the same room with each other mm-hmm. in their minds. Yeah. One of my favorite conceits from that terrible trilogy of movies. Yeah. So we just ripped that off. Oh, okay. okay. And so Grindelwald and Dumbledore can meet in a cafeteria in their minds and they have this like confrontation sort of like they're supposed to meet mm-hmm. like he D- Dumbledore is there and he's sort of like pensively waiting and uh, will he won't he show up like this is a date and then he does show up and he sits down and they have their sort of confrontation fraught with sexual tension and it, it it's basically you know we we they, they've made a vow and they've got like this like locket thing that is like wrapped around Dumbledore's wrist or whatever and he can't it's a blood vow where they've mixed their blood in this locket that mm. now can't be broken in case you need help with the metaphor. There's a metaphor there. And it can't, it can't be broken, so they can't go against each other. They can't oppose each other. And what you have is this conversation about who's the idealist and who's the romantic. The old Magneto, uh, what's Xavier. His, Xavier. Exactly right. Yeah, so, so Grindelwald is the the idealist he's malcolm x and and uh, what's his face is martin luther king jr yeah and he he insists that dumbledore always was too in fact he pushed things forward and dumbledore basically is put into the corner of saying no i i was in love and and that's what he says i was in love and so all my idealism all of my i was just king off of you and just i was in love with you and that's how we get started and then we talk about that and continue to it comes back and we talk about it over and over throughout the movie until finally at the end the the climax of the movie is we have this sort of face-off between Dumbledore and Grindelwald they can't fight each other but Grindelwald goes in to make a kill and Dumbledore goes in to make a save and in the magical world of uh, J.K. Rowling where you have two equal and opposite forces motivated by hate and love, mm. then the contract can be broken and suddenly they realize in that moment they can fight each other. And so they do, and it is a match each other, blow for blow, spin, parallel mirrored f- sort of fight. They come around into the center of like this cloudy place where they're having this this fight. And by the way, a lot of... Like what Dumbledore does is just, there are these fights that happen in sort of like a mirror dimension, like mm-hmm. taken out of Doctor Strange. It's a whole other thing that is never really fully explained. This happens sort of there, like really quick, like nobody else really understands what's happening. But they come against each other and their backs turn and then they turn and they grab each other by the collar. And so they both have their hands on each other's chests with the wands pointed at each other's heads. And neither of them can pull the trigger. And like they both look down at the other person's hand on their t- It's just a romantic moment. And mm-hmm. it's filmed to be a romantic moment. And then they back off and then that's the end. And then Grindelwald leaves. And Dumbledore is now, he, he's free to fight Grindelwald. And he's triumphed more or less. But he's free from his oath. But now is he going to be free in his heart to actually do what needs to be done? And so that's what we're going to be building up towards over the next movie. And that's kind of what's clearly set up. And Jacob Kowalski is in the movie and awesome and fun. And Eddie Redmayne is actually not terribly obnoxious in the movie because he's reduced to being such a side character who just does quirky little dorky dances and things mm-hmm. with his with weird creatures. And his brother is actually... Yeah, pr- pretty solid. There's a there's a there's a woman that they add to the cast who is horrible. The actress is just horrible, and she's just distractingly bad. And the way that she sort of affects her like sense of knowing, mm. and, and so that's I forget what her name is. What what happened to Eddie Redmayne's girlfriend? She shows up at the very end, out for the wedding, and then they have a moment where they just are like awkward, and he's like bashful, awkward Eddie Redmayne with her. But she's gone for the entire movie. Oh, man, that's vindictive because I think Catherine Watterson went after J.K. Rowling pretty hard on Twitter and all those places. And she just wrote her out of the movie. She got written out of the movie and then she shows up at the very end. Yeah. She's still going to get the check, though. So, yeah, well. And not have to do anything or put her stamp on something that she probably doesn't even like. So it actually worked out really nicely for Catherine Watterson. But yeah, Queenie does come back from the dark side over the course of this movie. Everything gets reset. 
in that sense. What about the, what's his face? The Flash. What about his, his, his arc? So. Because he was Dumbledore's brother. But he's not. Oh, that's so lame. He's not. He is Aberforth's son. So he's Dumbledore's nephew. He's, he's Dumbledore's nephew. So Mads Mikkelsen or Johnny Depp was just lying to him. That's right. That's a really lame plot twist. That's, he was lying. That's the whole, he was, yep, infuriating. He was, yeah, he was lying the whole time. What a cheat. cheat. Mani- manipulating him. And so we have this confrontation with Credence and Albus in the mirror dimension where Albus basically gets the best of him and is like... What he told you, none of it's true, but you are a Dumbledore. He's just, but he's just using you. Uh, so we, what we basically see is Credence is dying. He he is potent and powerful, and he is a weapon to kill Dumbledore that has been weaponized. And then we just sort of like very lamely diffuse all of that. So Aberforth and Albus are there at the sort of final confrontation. Both Albus and Aberforth move in to save Credence from Killing Curse. And that's what breaks the, the thing. And then, and then we have this really, I think probably for any real fan of Harry Potter, one of the dopiest things that happened in the entire movie is Credence sort of falls into Aberforth's arms and asks, do you love me or something like that? Because he, like, he, that's the moment he's, re, he's united with his dad for the first time. And it's, I guess complicated, but we don't ever bother exploring why it's complicated, why they, why Aberforth was never there for him or whatever. Mm-hmm. And so we get the the one word answer always. always. Yeah. Oh and it's just like, man, you want to rob one of the most potent moments in all of it, it. One of the most potent moments in one of the most potent franchises, fantasy franchises of all time. You take that word and you put it in a Fantastic Beast movie. And have it said between Aberforth, Dumbledore, and Credence. Credence Clearwater. Clearwater Revival. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so it's just like, that's it. That's this whole mess. And now Queenie, but then Queenie and Jacob are going to get together and they're going to get married in the bakery and it's going to be sweet and everybody's there. And then Eddie Redmayne's girlfriend's going to show up and it's going to, they're going to have an awkward moment and... Dumbledore is just going to be sitting outside the shop with his wistful look in his eye. and A little bit like... Sorry, go ahead. The shoe's on the other foot now, because now, instead of Jude Law getting married, while well, Robert Downey Jr. looks on wistfully in Sherlock Holmes' Game of Shadows. <laughs> <laughs> Jude Law knows what it feels like wow. now to, to sit so, outside so, a wedding so, and look so, on wistfully. So then the whole movie is just Jude Law looking really sad and wistful with his big brown eyes and his bushy beard mm-hmm. and Mads Mikkelsen looking like really sort of yeah, bad boy, homoerotic, you know, and, and, and that's just it. That is the whole movie. It is the most... I would say the most successful gay romance in franchise film history. Well, could you name another in franchise of this size or really any popular franchise that actually front, uh, what's the word? Not front load, but <laughs> fronts. It puts, puts at its center. Yeah. Put a it gay its romance. Heart. Yeah. Yeah. And, and that's like it, one of the most beloved characters in franchise, in any franchise. Like you've got Albus Dumbledore, you've got Gandalf, you've got what, a handful of other people Robert Downey Jr. Mm-hmm. that that fit like that 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 reach a certain stature, and now we've taken that character played by Jude Law, and we've put him in an explicitly gay romance at the heart of a movie, and and played incredibly sympathetically mm-hmm. and effectively. The degree to which it does not feel gross is mind blowing. Like it is done really well by two really good actors, and it and and that's what makes it so horrifying. And yet, because Rolling is canceled, mm. nobody is. There's another version of the metaverse where we're all hailing this as a pioneering work of. Uh, yeah, there's another version of of of. There's an, there's another universe out there where this is like the most amazing, bold, courageous. This movie gets an Oscar. And, yeah. Or at least is in the conversation because people are pushing for it. Yeah. Lobby lobbyists. Yeah. yeah. And, it, and it's completely just blacklisted, canceled. Nobody's talking about it. It's amazing. Like, 
Marvel has, Marvel still hasn't. What? There's a word that I want. It's not front load. Marvel still hasn't. Yeah, I uh, know. I know the word you want. I can't think yeah. of it either. Mar- Marvel still hasn't done that. I mean, has it done anything close? Star Wars hasn't done anything like that. Right. Neither one of them has had a beloved protagonist. Like, like this is like making Luke Skywalker gay. This is like making if Carrie Fisher had actually been in love with Haldo. Right, and we had actually talked about, and it. that had been the entire point of the movie. Yeah. If. If if Ray was a man and her and Kylo Ren had the same relationship, or we even amped it up actually into a true romance. Yep. Yeah, I mean the left's agenda isn't gay romance; it's total destruction, destroy right. every sexual boundary. And this movie isn't falling in line. Yeah. Well, she's, 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 I mean, this I mean movie we're rolling is, but rolling isn't. She stops short of exactly one boundary. And that's what like, I mean. Ah, cancel. And, right. Yeah, and there's there's nothing that she can do. This is nothing that she can do. And there's yeah. nothing, and it's amazing to see them eat themselves like this. Mm-hmm. Like, it's amazing. Let's not pretend like we did talk about. We had that episode where we talked about rolling, probably over on Sound of Sanity. Podcast. Probably, on, That's right. yeah, probably on yeah, Sound yeah. of Sanity. But we did. We said there, and we should reiterate here. She's not a friend, and this movie proves she is not a friend. She mm. is an enemy. She is one of them, not one of us. But. She man. happens to be an enemy who puts us to shame sometimes. <laughs> yeah. yeah, because she has principles and certain parts in, in certain areas yeah but in, in this movie is that this movie is it's something that's insane i mean yeah. that's, it's really just crazy it, it, i am extra disappointed in her because what a perfect opportunity to actually make say what you know what everybody's gonna hate me anyway and i've got actually one of the mo- more heteronormative franchises between mr and mrs weasley and harry potter Look, every franchise has to have a girl fighting somehow these days, but Harry Potter is probably the best of the modern franchises in terms of just traditional mm-hmm. gender norms. So, perfect opportunity to just just do normal stuff, to actually rally a big conservative audience to go buy tickets and to force Warner Brothers to... Like now they're probably not... She's probably not going to get the fourth and fifth movie. Yeah, and that's what that's basically what they're saying. This is far and away... The lowest grossing uh, movie in the whole franchise. And although she's under contract for four and five, uh, it just may never get finished. I don't think that if, if, if you're a Warner Brothers executive, you don't continue to pay her to, to do these things. You say, we well, got to go back to the whiteboard. And then I don't know. The problem is if you're stuck between if you, you if you have the Sophie's choice of we do them with Rawling or she still has enough control that we don't do them at all otherwise that's hard they'll they'll still do them they're still i mean well maybe they won't but at the end of the day warner brothers unless unless pattinson and dc can actually start to to make money they don't have that many it's not like they've got a certain cash a killer cash cow well warner brothers just got sold by at&t i think it's part of discovery warner now and They've got a new CEO, and he is he is banking on DC. He's trying to find a Feige, like he's explicitly huh. said. Yeah, I've seen that. We, we need a Feige. I need huh. a guy or or a, a lady. I think he'd probably prefer. We need somebody who can bring this all together. Who can who can do what Feige's done for for Marvel? And he's looking for that kind of person who combines. He doesn't see it as looking for a creative force, which is where I think is actually his mistake. Yeah. He sees it as, I, I have to find somebody with Feige's biz, business savvy. And true, Feige yeah. is an amazing businessman. Yeah, but Feige pulls it all together. By by being a, a creative who's sensitive, he, he sensitive to what his audience. He may just be a unicorn in that sense. Like, mm-hmm. somebody who can pull everything together that Feige pulls together is pretty unique. And that's why the MCU has been pretty unique. Right. Huh. So, I mean, Snyder couldn't do it. Snyder had a vision. He had a, well, but yeah, but we've talked about this. Yeah. He had a vision, but he couldn't sell it. Right. Mm-hmm. And because he couldn't sell it, Warner Brothers was ready to pull the plug on him really quick. It's, and with the, and they just keep going over the, over the, the sort of the dregs of Marvel. Like, oh, we'll pull in Joss Whedon. Oh, we'll pull in James Gunn. Oh, right. we'll pull in, what? I guess Matt Reeves might have the creative vision. But well, yeah, but the, well, what mm-hmm. were you going to say, Ben? Well, I was just I was trying to remember what was the point at which Warner Brothers balked at Snyder. Batman v Superman did, did not do the kind of business That's that right. it needed to. Yeah, okay. Actually, they balked before it even came out. The audience wasn't supporting it, which I actually I, we've talked about this before. I actually think the director's cut, while incredibly problematic and stupid and Snydery in some really dumb dark ways, is 
a much better movie than what we ended up. Mm-hmm. I ended up watching that because you said that, and I have to agree. I mean, it's still got yeah. the Lex Luthor problem. I mean, which like, and it's got the Snyder doesn't believe in any kind of Superman redemptive Superman problem, which are huge problems. But it does have actually a pretty good Batman story, and mm-hmm. actually a pretty good their Superman mm-hmm. story. At yeah, its core. and yeah, what you needed if you're going to take Snyder's Superman. What you needed was a Warner Brothers that just said, okay, come hell or high water, this is the Superman that you've chosen, and we are going to- It's the Superman we need. We're going to have to teach Mm -hmm. people that this is the Superman they get, and this is the Superman they love, and this is the Superman they didn't know they wanted, and by the time it's all said and done, they'll love this universe, and they will love this Superman, or we will have really taken a punch in the mouth. Well, the problem is... And if they would have just persevered in that, I think that it would have turned out just fine. It, it does, be. but that's not, what, that's not the model that everybody's running after anymore. What you want is a Feige model where what it's really about is branding and you can sell the brand and you can swap out the directors. Like yep. in, as, as in the early 2000s, you could hire Chris Nolan and say, well, this guy's just got a compelling Batman movie. He'll do his three Batman movies. The problem with then that... Then we can reset it. If it'll be his Batman. Mm-hmm. It'll be its own thing, and then we reset it. But that's we, not how they think anymore. Yeah. They, they're like, we're wasting money. We could have been setting up mm-hmm. parts four and five and the crossover and the extended thing and the thing. And to have Nolan do three. So even Reeves, I think he's got some cachet right now because they're just throwing money everywhere trying to get see get, what sticks. See what sticks. But I don't know. It'll be interesting to see whether he survives current studio thinking i mean we're going to get a batman too because they just don't have anything else to to throw at us right now besides mm-hmm. wonder woman which i think underperformed on streaming aquaman yeah yeah i mean <laughs> they've, they've got a handful of other things ezra yeah. miller they were going to bank aquaman, a lot which now has a amber heard problem yeah, aquaman mm-hmm. has an amber heard problem flash has a huge ezra miller problem because yeah he just keeps getting drunk and arrested and everything else right he's been basically currently suspended from being a part of promotions or anything like that i mm. think they have a flash movie in the can and they're just like well mm-hmm. we got to do something with it and he's a lot of fun i mean ezra miller you could have built around he's he's pretty great in the snyder mm-hmm. superman or uh, whatever it is justice league type thing so i mean reeves says it was all his vision to put joker and stuff into the batman movie and to, to throw the little franchise nods in that he did but i have to imagine it was his just vision notes. I don't think he's lying. I just think he's, well, it was convenient for me to think this way at this time. Mm-hmm. And everybody yeah. wanted me yeah. to anyway. So what's the, I'm a team player. What's the best way to mm-hmm. throw some kind of franchise hooks but, in here? But all the franchise hooks that he threw in were like really compelling and interesting. Like the Joker that he threw in. In that scene, that cut scene. Yeah, uh-huh. he's good. It's su- the whole, even the conceit of the, con- the cut scene and what came before and what where could it head is, I think, super compelling. I mean, that scene makes me mourn for the, the Dark Knight Rises that we never got where Heath Ledger's oh, yeah. in Arkham and mm-hmm. he can go visit and have his little Hannibal Lecter conversations and Absolutely. stuff. Absolutely. That would have been great. But alas, alas and alack. <laughs> what were we talking about? Harry Potter. Yeah. They they really just need to, as they say it, they need to wrestle this away from Rowling at this point. And I don't know who has the leverage. I know she has a lot of leverage built in, but her versus a massive corporation that has a lot of I mean, its, it's its own just, hooks it's, in the it's, wizarding it's, world. It's a, the George Lucas problem all over again. And the problem is going to be, okay, can, can, we, can we wrestle this away? And if we do, can we actually build something that is creative and unique and compelling and fun right out of it and i they just don't it's it it will not happen i think george lucas expected to be treated better i i think jk rowling might actually not make the same mistake as george lucas i think he expected kathleen kennedy to basically continue his story to use his notes he thought he could be hands off he could make a billion dollars support all his favorite charities retire nicely and see people tend the legacy in a respectful way and that's just not exactly what happened i have not read it but apparently there's a pretty sad scene in bob Iger's memoirs where bob Iger goes to talk to george lucas and they have this really awkward conversation where he realizes in the middle of this meeting that george expects to still 
have some creative say and Iger has to break it to him like uh no we're not we're not going to any of with any of your ideas george except in the broadest strokes like you wanted the third trilogy to have a girl that was looking for luke skywalker i think that's about all we took from hmm. from lucas but in any yeah, case she won't she won't make that mistake she's too smart and savvy for that and she's watched how things have gone down with lucas and franchise filmmaking she has a story that she wants to tell i expect and she has the money and the freedom to like if they if they take away the movie from her right if they take away the project from her yeah i mean i don't know what the details of the contracts and everything are i don't think it's so much about taking the project i think the only the only thing to do is go big or go home they need to take the wizarding world from her right if they're coming for it they're, they're coming for everything you know yeah and i think that she would just fall on that sword and just be like i'd rather the wizarding world die i'd or, rather or the wizarding world die go static until i'm dead and you work and you screw over my heirs somehow yeah um, i think that's what she'll do i think she'll say fine i'll self-publish the rest of my fantastic beast stories if i have to it, or somebody out there will publish it somebody wants wants the money because there are people out there that are going to pay for it yep and so i mean i think she'll just take her ball and go home right i mean at this point i mean she's given away so much money one of the most commendable things about rolling is her charity work Although I don't know where all that charity money goes. I just know mm. that there are, but I mean, you could see, I mean, so long as Elon Musk thinks he's going to buy Twitter, you can see a couple of people with a couple of, with the bankroll saying, uh, how about we just buy Warner Brothers instead? Mm. How about we just buy Sony? How about we just start our own studio mm. and do our own thing? That kind of thing is not, entirely outside the realm of possibility, especially if there are people out there. What was the, what was it? a shadow clan or shadow? Oh, the shadow. What is it? The sh it is the shadow clan or the shadow. Uh, what is it? I bet if I put it in Google, it'll come up. Sh if I just put shadow in, I'll just get put it. Musk shadow, Elon Musk shadow. Hmm. Musk shadow. Oh, come on. Google, you stupid. Rolling support. The shadow crew. Yeah, as long as there's a shadow crew of rich billionaires supporting Elon Musk's takeover of Twitter, mm. then there could be a shadow crew of rich billionaires, including Elon Musk, supporting J.K. Rowling's takeover of anything or formation of something new. Yes, true. I, I, we just live in a world where there are more possibilities than that, or it feels like there are right now. Maybe it didn't feel that way three months ago or six months ago, and maybe those possibilities only exist if you are literally e Elon Musk, but... Yeah, I mean, it would have to be a very uh, special person. I mean, I don't know enough about the finance of these things. I have to imagine Warner Brothers is quite a bit more expensive, especially Warner Discovery now is quite a bit more expensive than uh, Twitter was probably. Oh, yeah. But, and we're talking billions, mm -hmm. like Twitter was what, oh, yeah. 4 billion? 44. 44, okay, that's mm -hmm. a lot. Yeah, yeah, that's not... Rowling can't just do that. She, okay. she, she can't just get a loan for $44 billion. I'm not sure Elon Musk could either. That's the thing. But, I mean, Musk could probably if he, if he wanted to. A Bezos could. A Rowling, I don't think, could. But I don't know much about these things. Well, anything else to say about Crimes of Grindelwald? Are you glad you saw it? Would you see number four? I'm not... Uh, well, I'm glad I... <coughs> I can for myself put this franchise to rest how about that like dobby you're gonna bury it in a on, on the beach yep as it's the stars and what's that she had a really great line when dobby died about the stars being reflected in his eyes and I or something i don't, don't know. know i don't know this is a really great little line but you don't know what your it. tattoo says <laughs> <laughs> i don't look at that tattoo nathan yeah it's it's well it's based on where it's located i don't know how you could right yeah well ben never looks in the mirror so <laughs> yeah <laughs> he never he my never, forehead he never, he never yeah. see your forehead <laughs> i can't see it jake yeah <laughs> <laughs> That was silly. Uh, <laughs> it was pretty silly. <laughs> but fun. Yeah, it was fun. Um, <laughs> I just think what I'm not going to do is give up Harry Potter. Um, like the original books or movies? Yep. I'll, those seven books are great fun and uh, the movies are too. 
Well, and part of believing in authorial intent, believing in not the death of the author, is that the author can't kill the author. What I mean by that is J.K. Rowling can't reverse engineer meaning into something that she didn't intend when she wrote it. She's not. She. 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 I. I don't think she can say, "Well, Dumbledore is gay." If that's not actually what she was writing into the text, and maybe that's an interesting example because maybe she was. But there's a lot of other crazy things that have come out about the Wizarding World ever since then that I just feel no need to. Yeah. Who cares what extrapolate she said, back who, who into? Who cares my, what she said post facto? Right. Right. It. It. But. It's not who cares. We care. It, like, it, it makes a yeah, difference. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It does make a difference. And and the fact is, Fantastic Beasts and the way that she's cultivating this franchise is going to hang over and inform everything about Harry Potter for for people who have seen yeah. those movies. And it'll, it'll, soon, it'll soon just be part of the cultural reality. Yeah, although you have to see, I mean, give it 50 years I mean, or, or give it 20. I mean, nobody remembers the Butch Cassidy and Sundance Kid sequel. I mean, nobody remembers mm-hmm. Godfather 3 doesn't hang over Godfather 1 and 2 the way it did in 1990, whatever, when it came nobody out. Nobody ever read The Silmarillion. <laughs> <laughs> I did. Well, uh, the better example might be all those weird Christopher Tolkien tones uh, of... That was too much like, even for me. Yeah. He's the driest of the dry. Yeah. Like, we, we could... Still love. Anyway, so we'll see where Harry Potter sort of lands in the cultural conversation, what its legacy is. I, I tend to suspect it will last, which is not what I used to say, but I've just seen enough. I mean, I don't know what constitutes a generation, but I seem, I feel like I've seen enough different generations of kids embrace that stupid thing that it's just like, well, Nathan, you can be grumpy about style or certain, certain plot things all you want, but. This, the, the magic of this is just undeniable, and I don't know why it would go away 50 this, years from this now. This is not going anywhere. Yeah, unless they really cancel it, like as in the Gestapo comes and burns all the copies, and like I guess you could make it go away that way. But as, as, little, as long as it's available, people are going to find it, and people are going to love it. I was going to say, she supports a lot of stuff to do with children and reading and AIDS and multiple sclerosis and dyslexia and also reading and stuff like mm-hmm. that. Yeah. So a lot of it is health child health related but also some general like here's a women's fund or here's a literacy fund that right. kind of thing jk rowling feels like what it what it used to be to be a liberal liberal like she's right she's she just hasn't changed it's like the the meme that musk tweeted yes out exactly that's exactly right? what i was thinking of she used to just be kind of a centered liberal now she's what's the meme sorry it's just this picture of one person who yeah i think the it's a timeline or something like that it's like 2000 or something this mm-hmm. person is a, a leftist and you have people on the right. And then what you see as you go down by decade or by five-year increments or whatever it is, the person on the right hasn't changed. The person who was originally on the left hasn't changed. Mm-hmm. But the line of what is left keeps mm-hmm. moving farther and farther to the yeah. left so that the person who, if it's J.K. Rowling or Elon Musk that is being represented as a leftist in 2000, mm-hmm. They're not, they go through the shift of being identified as a centrist and now being identified with the right mm-hmm. when nothing they have believed or said has actually changed. Mm-hmm. Right. I don't believe children should have crazy surgeries on their genitals. Oh, you right wing? No, I'm, I'm actually kind of left center, normal for all of human history. Uh, that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. All right. How many vials of romantic blood out of nine zero yeah zero okay i mean seriously the gay romance at the heart of this movie is the most redemptive thing about this movie there is nothing there is nothing like it is a it's just a it's a you take that away it's a mess of a movie Mm -hmm. and so the when you look at it and say the best thing about it is the most morally corrupt thing about it what can you say? What's the like? It's there's nothing to like. There's nothing to enjoy. There's nothing to come back for. It's only spit it out of your mouth. Mm-hmm. There you go. Man. All right. Well, let's see if my my garbage movie can fare, fare any better than that. So I saw Robert Eggers' The Northman, a ninety million original non franchise film. They spent Sounds interesting. They spent money on this thing. They spent money on something that 
was it previous IP? Previous IP because they thought people like historical epics or they don't. Usually they don't actually. Usually they <laughs> flop. <laughs> Ridley Scott's made like nine flops, but one time he made Gladiator and that made all the money and everybody loved it and he's been chasing it ever since. But yeah, they made a, a 90 million Viking epic done by this gentleman, Robert Eckers, who's pretty famous for The Witch and for The Lighthouse, both of which are incredibly esoteric, weird historical movie the witch is famous for only using dialogue written by the puritans in other words he found letters he found things where he could extract things that they actually said so nobody in the movie actually says anything that a puritan didn't literally didn't say literally didn't say yeah so he's that kind of a guy he's he's weird he's esoteric he's not mainstream at all But he went into the studio apparently and said, how do you feel about a Robert Eggers as mainstream as I can make it Viking epic? And they went for it. I don't know why, but they went for it. And he made this crazy Viking epic. And I was interested in it for a couple of reasons. I suspected it would probably be off-puttingly violent and off-puttingly pagan and all kinds of things. But I was interested in it for a couple of reasons. Number one, I'm always up for a good sword movie, like a good historical epic. I mean, some of my favorite movies growing up were Braveheart and Gladiator and and things like that. You know, any movie that kind of transports you back to a different time when people hacked each other to pieces with swords. I thought was I always thought was cool. So that was fun. And then that's that's always fun. If somebody wanted to make our generations or this generation I guess our our generation's gladiator was gladiator. But if somebody wanted to make the next generation's gladiator and actually do a good job and actually find like a russell crowe to be all honorable and stuff like that'd be cool i'd be into that i'd be here for it and if they weren't going to do a make it all woke and like the, the past sucked and adam driver and matt damon were idiots <laughs> that that like that's all the kind of historical epics we get these days but it, but i like a good historical epic a good historical action movie so there's that and then on our good friend twitter we follow and interact with a lot of conservative men and we try not to stray too far into the crazy red pill territory, obviously, but follow and interact Speak with... for yourself, Nathan. Well, yeah. We, the royal we, <laughs> tries not to stray too far into crazy red pill stuff, but then I have to hang out with the craziest red pillar of them all. <laughs> well, <laughs> what can I say? <laughs> yeah. Mr. Testosterone himself, uh, Benjamin Solzer. Uh, so... I saw people saying, this is a movie. This is a movie for men. It doesn't have any of this woke stuff. It's about a man protecting his family and getting revenge on his enemies and all this kind of stuff that men should do, which right there, their premises were a little bit questionable, perhaps. But I saw enough of that that I was like, okay, okay. And then we had a friend reach out and say, he, it actually wasn't his point, but he just incidentally said... I saw it. It's very pagan. It's like a pagan Hamlet. So I had all this going through my mind. I happened to have a couple hours while my wife had just a lot of estrogen. I don't mean she was taking estrogen pills. I mean, there were a lot of women in the house. And I had this window where I had nothing better to do. And I had to be kicked out because there could be no testosterone in the house. So I thought, I'll go where there's some testosterone. I'll go see the Viking or not the Viking. What's this thing called? The The North Man. So I'll say the good things first. It's it's beautifully done. It's got great cinematography. It really puts you back in the time period. Everything's authentic and real. There's no particular stab at anything woke or ahistorical. We're just going back to Viking times. And that's what Robert Eggers was interested in. I, I saw an interview with him where he was like, no, I didn't have women Vikings. They did that on the History Channel's Viking show, but that didn't happen. So I'm not going to do it. There was exactly one Viking woman warrior that we've dug up from a grave, and she must have been some kind of crazy person to make it in that, as he said, patriarchal society. And who wants to watch a movie about her? I'm going to do an actual Viking movie. It really gets into Viking lore, and it has some grand sort of gestures at a Viking story. So the final battle is these two mortal enemies in loincloths on the edge of an active volcano hacking away at each other with their swords. Uh, and they say, we will, I will meet you on the gates of hell, H-E-L. And then they, they meet each other on the literal gates of hell, this active volcano, and they, they're just fighting. And it's very epic and Conan the Barbarian kind of stuff. So a whole generation of young men is, is probably going to, the, the right kind of dark young man, the, the Nathan of... Kind of guy who 
like 300 or whatever? Or? Yeah, but imagine 300 not done by a cheese ball body bodybuilder <laughs> well hack dude with with that just shows off his forearms in all his interviews. Uh, imagine if 300 was done right. Like imagine if 300 wasn't computer generated. Like imagine if somebody just told the story of 300 and said I'm just going to put you in Sparta and it's going to be awful and realistic and grand and terrible and epic and pagan and all these things. I want to give you the real experience of the way that the Vikings saw themselves. 300 sucks and it's Diet Coke and, and this thing is like straight scotch compared to what 300 is. But but yeah, I'm sure a generation of guys, and I can confirm that a generation of guys will like this thing because I already saw them liking it, right? Like they, they think it's cool. And I could understand how a Nathan of 25 years ago might be pretty excited about this thing. So this is all set up for what I think. But the, the director said, I didn't want to glorify or denigrate the violence. I just wanted to show it. And I actually believe he's being sincere when he says that. The place where I tapped out was really early on in the movie. We start with the little Viking boy, Prince, and his father is like, yay, I love you. I'm the best. Let's drink mead together and stuff. And then the dirty, awful uncle murders the father. And the little boy runs off and all the bad guy soldiers are after him and he has to hide and he's all plucky and has his little knife and stuff. And he goes on to the the sea and then we cut to 20 years later and he's this marauding Viking dude who's worked his way up. And then he goes back to get his revenge, rescue his mother, played by Nicole Kidman of all people, kill his uncle, all this stuff. But where I tapped out was about 20 minutes in the movie when we meet the adult dude and he's this Viking guy. And we just see him and is his, his name Arthur. His name is not Arthur. His name is Amleth. Oh, the, this is this is the predecessor of Hamlet. Yeah, this is this is based it. on the story that Hamlet was based on. Yeah. So Am, so we meet Amleth as a young Viking dude, and we see him and his his compatriots just raise a village, R A Z E, a village, and it's an awesome action scene. It starts with some guy from the wall throws a spear. And the leader of the Vikings grabs the spear out of midair and tosses it right back, sends that guy's soul to Valhalla or whatever. And it's all done in one shot as they climb this wall, as they make it over, as they hit people with their axes and stuff. It's really impressive. But in the background, you just have women being dragged off, babies being torn away from their mothers, the stuff that would happen if Vikings pillaged a a village. And you eventually have all the village people who aren't useful as slaves being herded into a building and the building being set on fire. At that point, I was just out because I was like, okay, well, this is what our hero is doing. And we're not going to have some redemptive arc where he ever really comes back from that. I mean, maybe kind of, but basically this is who he is. This is what Vikings were. And, And I started by saying, I think the director was sincere in saying this is what Vikings were. Because I believe that's true. I I don't think he wanted to stack the deck one way or another. I don't think he's making a movie like, isn't it awesome to raise a village and kill a bunch of innocent people? It's not that. But the problem is... It does end up glorifying it, right? It does end up glorifying it. (laughs) Because it's awesome. It's great filmmaking. And what I said to you guys before we started, I compared it to Apocalypto, if anyone knows that movie, which is about a a little uh, Mayan guy who gets taken to... uh, Aztecs, right? No, it's actually. I think it's. Actually, is it is it all Mayan? I. I'm he's sorry, Aztec. I, I don't know what he is, but okay. I think I think all the right. big all city right. where all the sacrifices are happening is a Mayan city. Okay, it's been a while. In any case, in Apocalypto, he gets taken to this village, and they're going to offer him as a blood sacrifice, and he escapes, and the Mayan captors come after him, and it's a chase movie. I was like, what if you made that movie, but you made it from the point of view of the captors, of the sacrificers, of the actual pagans, demonic people in the movie. That's, that's exactly what this movie, The Northman, is. And the guy kind of wants to do it without comment, but he does it so well that it does become glorifying. I guess I would compare it to someone trying to present the Holocaust without comment. The lack of comment is its own comment. Yes, it's not possible. Yeah, if you wanted to say like, well, the Nazis were brave and they had values... And they did the Holocaust. <laughs> they were very orderly. Those they, were, they were very orderly and they believed in something. They believed in fatherland. And because we're presenting a neutral picture, we need to understand all of these things about the Nazis and we need to give them all equal narrative weight. So you have 
their orderliness. That gets, let's say, five points of narrative weight, of, of narrative importance in the, the way that we're telling the story. You have their love of the fatherland. That gets five points of narrative importance. And you have the Holocaust. That gets five points of narrative importance. Now, would you be presenting an accurate picture of the Nazis and who they, they are? Would you actually be presenting a neutral narrative picture if you did that? Uh, let me give another silly, even sillier example. Let, let's say you made a biopic of Elvis. Baz Luhrmann's coming out with a biopic of Elvis, right? Let's say you said, you know, Elvis, he made music, but he also did other things too. What else did Elvis do? Well, he had a hobbies, and I think one of his hobbies was firearms. He liked to shoot off his firearms, and he liked to eat breakfast. Every day, Elvis would eat such and such for breakfast. And because I'm a neutral observer, because I want to posit myself as a neutral observer in the way that I tell this story, I'm going to assign equal narrative weight to breakfast, firearms, and music, and relationships, and whatever else. I, I, I want to just paint a full picture. Now, would you be accurately portraying Elvis? Would you be making a movie that would successfully tell people who Elvis was? Or would you be making a frustratingly wrong-headed movie because it turns out very important to Elvis, to the way that he understood himself, to the way that everyone else understood him, was the fact that he made this transcendent Elvis music. The fact that he sang Blue Suede Shoes and Hound Dog and all that stuff. That's really important. If you tell a story that de-emphasizes that, or that gives it equal weight with other things that to Elvis himself actually weren't important as important, you are not successfully communicating the story of Elvis. You are lying about who Elvis is. Even if he did spend a lot of his life eating breakfast, you are not allowed to make the narrative choice to emphasize breakfast because it's not that important, actually, to Elvis. In order to be a neutral observer of Elvis, if such a thing is possible, what I'm actually arguing ultimately is that you always have to make narrative choices, that they always matter, and that you, you can't say that you're approaching something neutrally. It's impossible because just the way that you edit it, the, what you choose to show and what you choose to not sh show, what you choose to put in, what you choose to leave out, all these things affect the way that people feel about your story, right? And, and so you can't weasel your way out of the responsibility of choosing some things and not choosing other things. And when Robert Eggers in this film puts Viking courage and Viking vengeance and Viking masculine single-mindedness, Viking purity of purpose, all the things that Vikings would have seen as Viking virtues, when you stack these up against Viking sins, the depravity of Vikings, and you give them all more, the same moral weight, have you effectively communicated who the Vikings were? Even have, have you effectively even communicated how they probably viewed themselves, how they actually thought about themselves? No. No, you haven't. Because it doesn't matter what your purity of purpose is. It doesn't matter what your beliefs are about yourself. If you're going into a village and you're raping people and you're killing people and you're putting people into buildings and setting them on fire and all of this, it's going to have a deep and abiding impact on your own psyche. As, as the Marauding Viking, it is going to have a deep and abiding impact on who you are. It is going to be important. It, in your own life, in your own narrative, it is going to have more weight than this movie gives it. And certainly as Christians, we know that the old pagan way of doing things was awful. It was bloody. It was sexually depraved. It was really, 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 really bad. A movie that is going to accurately portray the way these pre-Christian societies work is going to be disgusted with them because they deserve to have us be disgusted with them because they were awful. And there's any number of ways that you could tell that story. There's any number of ways that you could create sympathy for characters within that story 
But you have to have your feet firmly planted on the ground, morally speaking, and be looking at things from the right point of view, be giving the narrative elements the weight that history tells us that, that they have, that the Bible tells us that they have, that truth, that morality tells us that they have. And that brings me to my other real complaint with this movie, which is I, I've tried, as I've talked about this, to give Robert Eggers the benefit of the doubt and, and say, well, I, I want to take him at his word when he says he wanted to kind of just have a neutral point of view. But I mean, come on. He, yeah. he himself loves neo-paganism. Absolutely, he loves paganism. He thinks it's so cool. I mean, the music in this movie is propulsive. And the creepy stuff is inviting. It's intoxicating. And he verges into the supernatural in this story. We, ha- we actually see the guy fight with a ghost. We see him go to Valhalla. We see him the way that he sort of would see himself. And some of that is just Eggers putting us in his head, trying to let us, as I said, see him the way that he would see himself. But a lot of it is giving credence and lending cinematic power to the self-mythologizing of the Vikings, to the crazy pagan rituals. There is a scene where we're establishing the relationship between the father and the son before the father is murdered by the evil uncle, where it's kind of a ritual of manhood. And they go into this hovel that's this pagan sanctuary, basically, where, where, the, where the priest, where the shaman does his thing. And and they walk through darkness and they come to this hole and the sun has to go down the hole and there's fearsome things down there and we have ominous music and we have skulls and we have blood. And it's just, it's all the signs and signifiers of brutal, old school paganism. And the movie invites us in. It invites us to enjoy that, to see how it could actually be a father and son bonding experience, to harness their inner bear energy as they end up doing and and go down into this creepy temple and face off against this creepy bloody priest and i I won't describe the whole scene but basically you see people engaged in a very 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 pagan society doing very 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 pagan things not pagan like they're not christians but pagan like pagan like old school pagan things and it's very evocative it's very fearsome. It's very. Uh, what I'm fighting against here is I'm afraid people will say, well, actually, it scared me. Actually, I thought it came across as kind of depraved. I thought that Eggers was actually just showing it again for what it is. But I just think that's ridiculous. I think, insofar as we have a figure of identification, a protagonist in this movie, he likes it, he engages in it without apology. It's portrayed powerfully in the film in a way that just can't help but be inviting when there's propulsive music and when the cinematography is as grand and the world is as created complete as completely as it is, it's going to have a draw. It's going to have a pull. Even though Eggers makes it gruesome, even though he makes it barbaric, it has the allure of the forbidden. It has the allure of the barbaric. It has the allure of paganism. And Eggers is not an idiot. He knows that's what he's doing. He made the witch which also has the allure of paganism. It ends with the girl becoming a witch, selling her soul to the devil, and smiling as she floats up into the air because she's become a witch. She's forsaken her stupid Puritan family, and she's become a witch, and now she's empowered. And people will say, well, actually, it's a sad movie about depravity, and isn't it sad that she became a witch? No, we like her, and she's smiling. And feminists everywhere wrote papers and did criticisms saying, It's empowerment. Everybody who's anybody sees this as a very empowering moment. Anna Taylor-Joy, who played the witch, saw it as an empowering moment. Alexander Skarsgård, who plays the Viking in this movie, sees a lot of the pagan stuff as being empowering, as being beautiful. And so when you have the filmmakers and you have the critics saying this is cool, this is metal, this is gnarly, this is beautiful, don't not take them at their word. Believe them. They're telling you they made this to be cool. And just because Eggers also talks out of both sides of his mouth and also says, oh, I was just trying to be neutral and not whatever. You can, you can give him that he probably actually believes that. I don't think he's trying to lie. But also give him that he's a master filmmaker working at the top of his craft. And he's making this stuff very cool. 
I mean, I mean, the other thing is you can't be neutral about sex and violence, right? I mean, I'm not saying you can never have sex and violence in a story. I'm not saying even that it can't be portrayed in a visceral fashion sometimes if it suits the particular story that you're telling. But you have to remember that when you show nudity, the men in the audience, let's just take the men, we'll pick on them for a minute. The men in the audience are going to have a response to that. They're going to have their lust actually aroused. And when you show bloodshed in a really graphic way, you're going to have bloodlust, which is a category in the scriptures. You're going to have bloodlust aroused. We all have something in us that likes to uncover naked flesh, and we all have something in us that likes to see blood be spilt, blood be shed, bodies be broken open. Now, many of us have natural revulsion against those things as well, praise God, but we all have that little part of us, and some of us it's much bigger, and some of us it's much smaller, but we all have something that would like to see that stuff. And when a movie just shows it, and shows it very skillfully and very extremely, it naturally invites you in. The movie can't pretend like it's not doing something simply by just showing it. I think there are some kinds of sins where, like if you show, show a guy stealing, obviously you can make it really cool, you can film it like Ocean's Eleven, or you can film it in another way that makes it not cool, that doesn't invite the audience into it. But there, there's nothing about simply watching someone take something that arouses your own covetousness, your own desire to steal in the same way that seeing an act of violence or seeing an act of sexuality arouses your lusts. And so again, the people who say, well, it's just a depiction. It's just neutral. No, it's, it's, it's really not. It's really not. This movie is not neutral because it's impossible to make a neutral movie about Auschwitz if you pretend like you're not taking a side in your depiction of Auschwitz, then you've taken a side, and it's not the good side. It's not neutral because you can't film sex and violence neutrally. It is, is by its nature participatory, and it's not neutral because the movie doesn't even pretend to be neutral. I mean, as I said, it ends with two guys having an epic duel in loincloths in front of an active volcano, which is meant to be cool. It's meant to evoke He-Man and Conan the Barbarian, and the things that it's drawing on are things that dudes, at least, think are awesome. And so they should. Fighting your enemy to death on the edge of a volcano is awesome. And this movie has lots of things that, if it was centered in some sort of a way, in, in a moral universe, it could be awesome. I like stories about heroes in olden times with swords. I like stories about barbarians. I like all this stuff. There just there has to be a moral center. As I said, I kept it comparing it to Apocalypto, the Mel Gibson movie. I don't know whether that's a great movie or an okay movie or a depraved movie or what. We're not here to litigate that movie, but I did enjoy that movie a lot more than I enjoyed this one. And it's simply because it's showing a barbaric pagan culture for what it was, and it's giving us a hero. It's giving some us some way to have a perspective that is useful on the material. You cannot just present the material neutrally. It, it doesn't help. It's like, uh, I think later this year, we're going to talk about The Godfather. And that's a hermetically sealed movie, right? That, that's a movie that invites you into the world of the mafia and does not give you particularly a, a, a point of view outside of it, right? All the characters in the movie are basically bad, except the way it's shot, the way it's scored, the way it's scripted, and in the crucial character of the Diane Keaton, Michael Corleone's wife, it does actually give you a perspective. And the perspective is that this is evil. It's also very seductive. It's also very cool. It's also very comfortable when you're part of it. We can say things about this. We can tell the truth about evil things and, and, and what's attractive about them in our stories. But we have to also have a perspective on what's really evil about them. And I don't think that this movie ultimately does that, which is very disappointing because it is masterful filmmaking, but I, I do not really recommend it. And I'm disappointed in, in the kind of response that conservative Twitter has had. And like, this is a really manly movie. No, gee, I hope not. This is not Christ-like manliness. Now, Christ is coming back with a sword. God is 
wrathful against his enemies, there's a place for destructive masculinity. There's a place for destroying your enemies. Even even if you're not Christ, there's a place for the Christ-like to thoroughly pummel their enemies into the ground. I believe that. But there is a moral way to do that. There is a moral way to seek justice, and there is a moral way to cut off your enemy's head or see that it is cut off. And there is an amoral, immoral way. And, and that's all this movie is. There's the pagan way and there's the Christian way. This movie is pagan, wee, 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 all the way home. Uh, if that doesn't sound appealing to you, then I don't know, maybe avoid it. Uh, maybe, maybe see Crimes of Dumblewad instead. Ben, you seen any garbage movies you want to? Not really. Not lately. Can't think of anything. We haven't, just haven't watched anything for a while. Yeah. Uh-huh. You know what? My wife and I watched Sherlock Jr. a couple weeks ago. Buster Keaton silent movie. Hey, that's, that's a great a, movie. That's a good movie. Yeah, it was super fun. And only like 45 minutes long. Yeah. Well, you know what else is 45 minutes long? What's that? The entire time that Jay, our Patron Choice Award of Awesomeness winner, has ever done anything wrong in his life or stupid. It's amazing. And he's been alive for many, many years, but only 45 of them have ever been... 45, 45 years of them? <laughs> yeah, only 45 years have been <laughs> given to dissipation, wickedness, and other bad and stupid things. No, only 45 minutes, because he's a great guy. What else is great about If Jay were in a Viking revenge story, he would do the right thing. Mm-hmm. Probably just go find, find the monks and become a Christian instead. Yeah. Yeah. Good go job, Jay. Go to That's the, impressive. The Abbey of Kells or whatever. Yeah, the Abbey of Kells. Help write that book. Yep. Uh, all right, folks. Well, there's your check-in on what's happening in cinema right now. Until next time. Always.